I think uh, as far as um, swimming is concerned, uh, I can genuinely say that I believe that uh, swimming uh, has saved my life. Meet Ben Clavell, a former New South Wales police officer and now English Channel swimmer, living with post-traumatic stress disorder. He is today's guest on A Home in the Outback, a podcast about people living, working and creating in the far west of New South Wales. I'm your host, Catherine Waite. Ben joined the police force as a young adult. He loved working for the police and found his passion in proactive police work. However, in 2012, while working in Tamworth, a colleague died, which he says he felt partly responsible for. The incident propelled him to work harder and faster to arrest as many crooks as he could. However, the rush of living on constant adrenaline started to take a toll on his body. After he moved back to Broken Hill with his family in 2018, things began to unravel and he was eventually placed on restricted duties. Ben says he felt a lot of pressure from management to return to the front line, even though he didn't feel he was okay. He was eventually medically discharged in 2021, and Ben reached out to local Lifeline ambassador Brendan Cullen and began swimming as a way to help his mental and physical health. In 2023, Ben swam across the English Channel in a team of six. Ben, thank you for your time this morning, and we're going to start off with um, where were you born? Thanks, Kath. Um, yeah, I was, um, I was born in France. I was born in Paris um, in 1978. My parents uh, moved the family here in 1985 um, uh, for a better life, really. And uh, we moved to Sydney, then made our way uh, in Australia and um, ended up living in a place called Scone, which is up in the Hunter Valley. And what made you join the police? I don't really know, to be honest with you. I think I'd been looking for something so I remember opening the um, newspaper one morning and on one side of the page was an ad for the army and on the other side of the page was an ad for the police. And I thought, well, I could go either way here, but I don't know about the army. Um, you know, you're away from home all the time and all that kind of stuff, but I quite like the idea of um, discipline. So you do your time at the academy in yeah. Goulburn and where did you get posted after Goulburn? Yeah, so I did um, my year at the academy and uh, then I got posted to City Central, uh, which is uh, the Day Street Police Station. It's right in the middle of Sydney. And what was those early years of policing like? What did you learn? It was awesome. I loved it. Um, I, I, I sort of found, I found my niche. Um, you know, I sort of um, found something that I was really good at and I really enjoyed. And the city was really vibrant. Uh, it still is, you know, really vibrant. Uh, Saturday, Friday, Saturday nights, a lot of stuff going on on George Street and stuff like that. Um, a lot of drugs, uh, a lot of alcohol-related crime, um, robberies, assaults. It was just a hive of activity, and you know, we were, we had a great time. Uh, we had good groups of of, of young cops uh, where we all, you know, would work on a team together, became great mates, and you know, would hang out after work. Um, and just lived and breathed the job. It was just, it was, you know, I was single at the time. Um, I was a young bloke just trying to find my way in life and I just found the best job in the world. It was, it was exciting and um, I loved every second of it. Mm. So after your three years in Sydney, you decide to move to Broken Hill and you're here for five years and yeah. then you move to um, Summerton as a kind of a one-man station or lock-up keeper role. Yeah. Talk to me about those years here in Broken Hill. What was it like policing in Broken Hill after coming from Sydney? Yeah, complete culture shock. So I had never been to Broken Hill. I didn't even know where Broken Hill was. Um, at one stage, I actually thought, Broken Hill was Burke, but then I soon realised that uh, Broken Hill is actually a completely different place and it's about 500 kilometres west, further from Burke. But I'd met my wife and she was uh, a teacher and um, we weren't able to live together because she was teaching in Bathurst um, and I was working in Sydney. At one stage, we thought about moving to Newcastle um, as she'd um, managed to get a job there, but that just wasn't able to happen with my job. 
So the best way that we could make a life together was to um, come to um, the West, come out West. And they were advertising jobs in Broken Hill. And so we grabbed that and, and came out here. Um, and um, honestly, it was, it was probably the best decision we ever made. Uh, Broken Hill is an amazing, amazing town. It's a bit of a shock when you first drive in and uh, you see a big mound of dirt in the middle of town and you know, you're um, um, you know, in the middle of nowhere, if you will, um, and all the houses are made of tin. But it didn't take long for us to really get into the, into the lifestyle. The actual policing side of it was really, was really great as well. Um, I remember walking into the um, police station and I met an old sergeant called Bob Denning uh, who's now retired, um, and I got talking to him about my my love for um, you know proactive policing and things like that, and um, he just pointed towards the um, barrier highway and he said, if you want to find crooks, go and sit on that highway um, because they're coming through here all the time, and uh, it didn't take long. Uh, I um, I took his advice and it didn't take long. And um, I found um, my first big seizure, uh, which was actually a cash seizure. Um, two males driving through Broken Hill in the middle of the night. Uh, just so happened they had uh, $68,000 cash stashed under the um, center console of the car. And I thought to myself, wow, this is, this is next level. Like, you know, I was finding a lot of drugs when I was in, in the city, but they were just small amount of drugs. You know, they'd be, a little bit of uh, heroin and maybe um, you know a couple of thousand dollars cash. So as far as moving to Summerton was concerned, um, we did our five years out here, and um, Broken Hill is a place that you sort of look at um, as a stepping stone. Um, although um, my sergeant did tell me one day, Bob Denning, he did say to me, um, Broken Hill is one of those places that you come and do your tenure, or you live in forever. And um, <laughs> I didn't believe him, but it's, uh, it has proven to be that way for a lot of, for a lot of people that come to this town. Uh, but I thought my time was done here in Broken Hill. Um, my wife, uh, her family's from Tamworth, and I uh, managed to get a uh, one-man police station uh, job uh, at Summerton. And were you given lots of leeway to do proactive work and um, that that work of finding, you know, travelling criminals? Yeah. So it's, it's interesting that you, you um, talk about the travelling criminal. So the travelling criminal is basically what I would look for. It just so happens that um, most of the travelling criminals that I came across happen to have drugs, cash or weapons. Um, but a travelling criminal can be any form of criminal. It can be a criminal who has um, committed um, domestic violence offences or sexual offences or anything. So what I used to look for were specific indicators um, that pointed towards criminality. It didn't have to be a specific sort of crime, but these indicators are present in no matter what sort of crime someone is committing. And Summerton allowed me uh, the ability to, to really hone my craft as far as that was concerned. Summerton was a one-man police station where uh, it was halfway between um, Tamworth and Gunnedah and I was the only police station in between. And I would have my police car and I'd have a 12-hour shift and there was about 20 people that lived in town. Uh, so I was able to um, you know, really get out there and enforce um, traffic offences and, and um, travel to other towns like Manila and Baraba and places like that. Um, and uh, meet people along the way. And um, using the skills that I'd, I'd, I'd gained, every person that I interacted with, I would uh, look at uh, with this set of, uh, you know, sort of ideas in mind that um, you need to be looking uh, at things that are you know, suspicious and that aren't right. Um, because um, at some stage or another, you're gonna come across someone who's committing uh, or is about to commit some sort of criminal offense and you should be um, open to that and be able to identify that. What were some big clients? Firearms, pistols, um, ounces of, of, of powder. Um, so as I said to you before, I was, I was used to um, you know, like what we call points um, and grams. So a gram 
is a fairly decent amount of drugs uh, for something like heroin or something like that. So a drug user will usually use a point of a gram. Um, so when you're finding ounces, which is 28 grams, that's a fair amount of drugs. And I was finding ounces and sometimes kilos um, consistently. And uh, so that would be happening on a, on a basically not on a daily basis. The big, the big ones would probably um, happen every couple of weeks or every couple of months, but I was getting consistent ones uh, throughout, um, detections throughout. Um, and there's a saying uh, that uh, you will never find the big stuff unless you can find the small stuff. So basically you've just got to be out there looking um, the whole time and um, eventually um, you will come across um, some sort of significant seizure or some sort of significant travelling criminal. In 2010, you had a really significant find. Yeah, I did. That yeah. propelled your career, but it happened on a significant day for you. What happened? So it was the 16th of December, 2010. Um, my wife was heavily pregnant with our third son, Eamon, and she was overdue. I actually was uh, asked to go to another police station to work for the, for the day because they, they didn't have enough staff. And I remember uh, Marie uh, telling me as I walked out the door, don't get involved in anything. <laughs> um, so I assured her that I wouldn't. And um, I went down to um, Quindai because obviously uh, I could have got the call at any time uh, that Marie was going into labour. And I remember um, seeing a van driving through the middle of Quindai uh, and having the thought about pulling it over and um, doing a brand of breath test on it. And I remember thinking to myself, well, what's the worst that can happen? The worst that can happen is that you pull over the van and you find a clandestine lab in the van um, and nearly 20 kilos of ecstasy, uh, which at the time uh, was the largest seizure of prohibited drugs from a cold stop um, in New South Wales. A cold stop is what we talk about in relation to um, the interdiction program, uh, where we have no prior knowledge of what's happening. Uh, we don't know that we haven't received intelligence that a van is driving from Queensland with an amount of drugs in it, or it's purely based on your own observations uh, and so on. And uh, yeah, um, at the same time that that was happening, I received a phone call and um, my wife told me she was going into labor. So <laughs> I had uh, a bit of stuff going on at that, at that stage and um, I asked her if she would mind holding on for a little bit and I was given a, <laughs> a very stern no. <laughs> um, by which time, obviously, um, a few of my mates had turned up, um, a few, uh, some detectives from Tamworth and we also had some detectives coming up from Sydney. Uh, so I had plenty of backup there um, but at the time when it all happened, I was, I was working by myself. But I felt at that stage uh, that there was enough people doing enough things and I could, um, I could leave. And um, yeah, I went up to, um, up to the Broken Hill, oh, sorry, the Tamworth Base Hospital and, um, and Eamon was born a short time later. Um, but uh, yeah, it's certainly a day that, um, that I'll never forget. It was such a big find. How are you feeling about being at hospital? Were you able to kind of switch off? Uh, to be honest with you, no. Um, it was it was it was one of those days where your adrenaline is just pumping, um, and there is literally nothing that you can do to turn it off. Um, my son being born was uh, the most amazing uh, experience. Um, I'll never forget that. Um, but I was also, uh, like most cops are, I was chained to my mobile phone and my mobile phone just kept on going off and going off and the enormity of the investigation was playing out on my mobile phone. And um, no, I wasn't able to switch off. I was, um, uh, I was glued to the investigation. Um, and that's, that's part of being a cop. Um, yeah, you're, one minute you're, you know, you're at work, the next minute the most amazing um, you know, event in your life happens. And then uh, at the same time, um, your, your job's still going ahead and still, you know, it's, it's still happening. And you are part of that. And it's very hard to, to um, differentiate yourself from, from that. So policing is a lifestyle. Um, 
like it or, or, or not. Uh, and it's really hard to switch off, really, really hard to switch off. So after this big find, what happened with your career? Did you get more opportunities to do drug work, training? Yeah, I did. Um, I had done some training prior to this particular job, uh, but uh, it certainly um, went ahead in, in leaps and bounds as far as as far as me um, being um, able to, um, you know, to impart my own knowledge um, with the police and with others with other police um, forces around Australia. But excuse me, I, I did some training in two thousand and nine, which really helped me to identify this particular seizure in, in two thousand and ten. And um, that's called criminal interdiction training. And it's, it's training that um, the American police have been doing for years and years. And the Victorian police actually brought it over to um, Australia and invited a number of um, police from each police force to come and be trained in that particular, um, you know, into, the, in, into that particular course. And I was one of those police. And remember I was telling you before where, you know, you, act on gut instinct a lot in the police, but not you don't always understand what that gut instinct is. This course specifically uh, identified what you were looking at as far as the picture in front of you and understanding the picture and understanding why your gut was telling you that this particular person was up to no good. So after that seizure, um, I became a instructor in that course. So I went back to Melbourne and um, actually became uh, an instructor in how to deliver that course. Uh, and then I returned to New South Wales uh, and still my daytime job was still policing but I would then also be sent to other police stations, um, to the Sydney Police Headquarters. Um, I went to Queensland uh, and uh, went to Cairns and um, um, uh, I went to Brisbane and some regional uh, centres and, and trained um, Queensland Police in, in the same skills. Um, 2011, you'd moved to Tamworth, um, but there was a really awful incident that happened yep. um, that affected you personally. Can you talk to me about that? Yeah. Um, in 2012, I was a member of the Oxley Highway Patrol, and um, uh, one of my colleagues was killed on duty, and it is something that will uh, stay with me for the rest of my life. It's something that I carry some personal guilt about or over um, and um, I believe that um, you know it's it's something that um, ultimately caused or ultimately um, was associated with my decline uh, my declining health in the police. Do you want to elaborate a little bit on the guilt? Why you felt guilty? <clears throat> Without going into the details, Kath, I, I feel guilty because I feel partly responsible for what happened. Yeah. What happened as a result of your colleague's death to you? What, what, what did it propel you into? Um, I remember thinking shortly after the incident that... Um, uh, that the crooks weren't going to win, uh, and that if they thought that they'd seen um, enthusiastic policing from me, uh, that they hadn't seen anything yet. And so I decided to turn the volume up uh, as high as it would go and work as hard as I possibly could to um, do the job to the best of my ability um, and arrest as many crooks as I could. Were you? When you say, you know, turn the heat up, what, what did that look like? Uh, basically, it looked, it just looked like uh, working from sun up to sundown um, and even working outside of hours. Um, now, you know, I would, I'd fig I figured out that um, if I spent my whole 12 hours um, trying to look for crooks, that I wasn't able to get my paperwork done. So my paperwork would... Um, have to happen at the end of my shift and that might take three or four hours so then I would be still in the office for three or four hours um, or I might take some of that paperwork home and do it at home so that I wasn't in the office all the time and had this feeling of um, well at least I'm at home so you know it's not as bad I'm not actually in the office 
but working 17, 18 hour days uh, constantly um, was the way that I dealt with it. And it wasn't, it wasn't uh, a lot of police work out of hours. It's, it's, um, it's one, of the, one of the things that happens in the job is that you just literally, there's not enough hours in the day. Um, so police go in on their days off all the time and do work um, and don't get paid for it. Uh, and that's because they have pride in the job that they do. And I, I was one of those people, um, but I probably went a little bit harder than, than, than that. And um, um, yeah, um, was that work too much? Way too much. Did you think there was anything wrong with your work ethic at that time? No. And if anything, I, I wore it as a badge of honour. No one w can work as hard as me. And I wore that as a badge of honour. Um, and it was something that um, I guess was um, um, appreciated. Oh, look, I don't know if that's the right word, but was accepted by the police. Um, and that, uh, you know, the, the results were coming in, the paperwork was getting done, and um, I seemed to be happy doing it. So, you know, um, it was accepted by the police. Things did start to go downhill for you, though. Yeah. When did you kind of start to notice, or what was, you know, after Tamworth you left um, and you moved to Hay? Yeah, I did that for a number of reasons. I did that um, as a form of a, an escape. I, I needed to get out of Tamworth. Um, I, as I said to you, that the incident had a big impact on me, um, and I felt like if I'd left Tamworth and went and had a fresh start somewhere else, um, that might help. But you know. Yeah, it's hard to sort of move sideways in the police, it, um, especially if you're trying to, um, you know, sort of justify that to your family. So I felt that the, the best way of being able to move on was to do my sergeant's exams and get a promotion so that the whole thing would appear like I was moving up in my career and um, not just trying to escape. Um, so yeah, that's the reason why I moved to Hay because I'd got a promotion as a sergeant. And what was your work like in Hay? How hard were you working in Hay? Uh, probably um, just as hard, um, but the opportunities in Hay, because of its location, uh, presented themselves even more. So the, the Hay is on the Sturt Highway, and the Sturt Highway is um, an extremely well-known drug couriering route um, between uh, the Western States and the Eastern States. Um, and so uh, on a daily basis, uh, I'd be finding um, contraband, um, travelling criminals, and even, you know, it was different to Tamworth again because Tamworth, um, Somerton um, were on uh, interstate highways and they weren't actually interstate highways. You were getting a little bit of stuff, but nowhere near the amounts that you were getting on the Sturt Highway. So, you know, the kilos turn into multiple kilos. And, you know, and so for, for a seizure that would be a normal seizure at Hay, you'd be looking at something uh, for cannabis around 30, 40, 50 kilos. Um, amphetamines, you'd be looking at, you know, anything between one and 10 kilos. Um, and cash, uh, you'd be looking at anything from um, 60,000 to $700,000 cash seizures out of a single vehicle. Um, and so that was really exciting. Um, it was really, it sort of felt like I was able to put all my experience to, to, you know, to, to work and was getting the results as a result of that. The problem was that I was a sergeant and that my core duties weren't being out, wasn't to be out on the road looking for crooks. My core duties was to um, take care of a police station um, and take care of my staff and take care of the town. So I knew that that um, was what I was required to do. So I decided that I was going to not only do that, um, but I was also gonna go out looking for drugs um, and looking for traveling criminals. So basically I, my work rate um, doubled overnight. Why did you do that? Why did you feel you wanted to be out on the road looking for criminals? 
If your role, the police force, required you to be in the station, what was it that drove you? Oh, look, it didn't require me to be in the station, but it certainly didn't require me to be the first person on the front line. Uh, that's, what, that's why you have constables and senior constables. Kath, I think I was probably addicted uh, to the feeling of the adrenaline that I got from um, identifying um, big crooks and you know big amounts of drugs and large amounts of cash. There is no better feeling than, than finding huge amounts of contraband um, and locking up really good crooks. Um, that's what you dream of as a cop. And because of the skill set that I'd, I'd gained over the years and my ability to be able to find that kind of stuff, coupled with my work ethic um, and my love for the job, then yeah, it was a perfect storm, really. And you know, that's a quality that members of the public love to hear that you're out finding drugs and that you have that reward that you're getting, but it was more than that for you, right? It, you, yeah. it was dangerous. Yeah. Yeah, I, I got to the point where I wasn't able to make um, intelligent decisions. I think I was getting to that point where I was getting really unwell. Um, and um, it's been explained to me that your brain sort of changes its, its, its chemical makeup um, when, you, when you get to that stage. Um, I've been diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder um, and you have certain parts of your brain um, that react to uh, dangers in your life and that try and keep you alive and it's what we call flight, fight, flight or freeze and um, after a while that part of your brain is the part of the brain that takes over and your critical thinking part of your brain sort of slows down or even, you know, sort of shuts down and is overtaken by the amygdala, which is the part of the brain that tries to keep you alive. So you're unable to make intelligent decisions. Uh, you're unable to think about the consequences or you're not willing to think about the consequences of what you're doing to yourself or to others um, because you're literally just uh, working off adrenaline and, and instinct. And it is really connected to that adrenaline, isn't it? When you're always in that state or always searching for that state yeah. of adrenaline, yeah. it's not healthy. No, and look, I would get to the stage um, when I would be sitting at home um, on the couch um, and have that adrenaline rush constantly going through me and not actually being able to put my finger on why I was feeling heightened like that. Um, and that's just a consequence of, of, of um, you know, just constant pressure and constant, um, I guess, yeah, uh, seeking the adrenaline rush. And at some stage or another, your body just doesn't turn it off and just says, right, oh, you want to live with this? We're going to turn it on permanently. You hadn't realised any of this, though, when you are at Hay. No. Um, but Hay, after Hay, you moved back to Broken Hill. Yeah, I did. I... Um, I was offered an opportunity here in Broken Hill um, and I could see um, that there was going to be some uh, career progression um, available for me and I actually thought that that would be, again, a way of, uh, of keeping myself, um, being able to stay in the job. I, I knew things weren't well, weren't good and I could feel myself going downhill. I didn't understand what was going on but I sort of felt like if I moved um, and maybe searched for a promotion, that that would extend the life of, of, of my career. Um, so that's why we moved back to Broken Hill. Um, not only that, we'd been here before, uh, we knew we loved it, uh, and um, it just seemed familiar. And um, I've, I remember leaving Broken Hill for the first time and looking at the line of load in the rear vision mirror and thinking, I'd love to come back here one day. And um, when the opportunity came up, I, I grabbed it with both hands. And we've been here since 2018. So you moved back here and what was, what was happening to you at work and what, were you, what was happening to your body? Yeah, look, I, um, I thought that going back into a 24-hour police station uh, would be uh, a, a way of being able to disconnect. Uh, Hay was um, a great little town, um, but you're on call 24 hours a day. And you're the sergeant of that police station 365 days a year. Um, and I really had, I felt ownership 
uh, that that was the job that I was, I was um, that was my job. Um, and so you never ever um, stop policing, even when you're on your days off. You know, you could be in the aisle at the IGA and someone will ask you a question and, and, and you respond to that because you're the sergeant of that town. I would sleep with my phone next to my bed um, and it would, um, it would ring in the middle of the night and we'd be called out or, you know, just the light of the phone would turn on and you, you would not want to miss something um, because in case, you know, someone was trying to get hold of you. So you'd turn it over in the middle of the night to have a look and as it turns out, it, it wasn't for you. Um, so you turned it back over and tried to go to sleep. But you can't sleep properly when you are basically switched on all, all the time. So I thought, okay, if I move back to um, a 24-hour police station where there's two distinct shifts, there's a night shift and there's a morning shift, that I could hand over the responsibilities of my shift to the oncoming shift, and that would make things easier for me at home, um, and that I wouldn't be as switched on, and that I would have more time um, you know, to just be a normal person. Um, but I was, I was way too far gone for that and um, there was no switching off. And again, um, I was probably supposed to be um, like an office type of sergeant, which is what's expected here in, in Broken Hill because there's so much stuff to do. Uh, but I was constantly out on the road. I was doing all my office work. I was never ever, I never ever didn't do what I was supposed to do, but I found myself um, craving being out on the road and, and finding crooks. And um, so moving here um, didn't help as far as that was concerned. And so my, um, my physical and my mental problems um, steadily got worse. But the main thing that I could really identify when I moved to Broken Hill was the physical stuff. So yes, when I was um, in Hay and, and before that when I was in Tamworth, um, I could tell that my mind wasn't right. You know, you're lucky you'd have, I'd have brain fog and not be able to actually think of stuff, um, not be able to um, prioritise, um, and I was no good at remembering anything. Uh, and that's still a major issue now, but it wasn't until I actually got here that my body started taking over. And I sort of feel like that's, you know, your subconscious or your, your body saying, you're not listening, there's something wrong. So we're now actually gonna get involved and show you there's something wrong. I wasn't able to, to speak properly. Um, I remember every time I'd, I'd get involved in a, in a job and I had to use the radio, I wasn't able to use the radio. Um, and I'd have to hand the radio to a friend. Not to, to a partner, to my partner. What, you, the words weren't coming? Weren't coming out, I couldn't speak. Did anyone notice? Uh, I did everything that I could uh, to make it uh, not noticeable. So if I was driving around in a car by myself, uh, I would take lots of deep breaths and then use the radio. But if I was in a crowd with other police, I would just hand the, police, the radio to someone else. Um, I was physically shaking all the time. Um, and I, I still have that now. Um, I don't know, it's adrenaline. I don't know what it is. Um, I had um, stomach problems. I remember one day I was at work and uh, I went to the toilet and I looked down into the toilet and there was blood everywhere in the toilet. Um, <clears throat> yeah, some pretty, pretty crap sort of stuff. Um, but again, I think that was my, my body saying, you're not listening, you're not slowing down, um, you're not well, um, so we're going to show you and this is how we're going to show you and everyone reacts in a different way but they're some of the physical things that happened to me so how did it all come to a head for you that you actually said i need some help yeah it took a crisis for that to happen i didn't um, know or didn't want i don't know whether it was i didn't want to or didn't know how to put my hand up um, but I just felt like it was something that you just, if you just keep working through it, um, you know, it'll be right. You just keep working through it, it'll be right. Because obviously everyone else is going through something as well. So who am I to be any different to anyone else? But 
a crisis happened on a particular shift uh, where I had to make um, a decision. Uh, and uh, um, without going into, into details, Kath, that decision wasn't a decision that I made consciously, it was a decision that I made on instinct. By that stage, I knew that there was two ways of policing. Um, it was either avoid situations or go into them um, uh, at full pace. And so I used to find ways of not um, getting involved in, in situations um, and making excuses, um, or I would just go in like a, a bull in a china shop. And this particular incident, um, I went in like a bull in a china shop. And um, um, it could have ended very badly. Uh, I could have killed someone. And after it was all said and done, um, I went back to the police station and, and uh, a mate of mine uh, came up and um, apart from you know, the actual job itself, um, which everyone else was interested in, he asked me if I was okay and really okay. And that's when I thought, you know what? I know I'm not, I'm not okay. And um, he gave me the opportunity to put my hand up. And I took that opportunity and um, the floodgates opened. And I then um, remember uh, going into the sergeant's office and taking my gun belt off and throwing it in the, in the cupboard and um, leaving, the, leaving the building and going straight down to my doctor and saying, Doc, I, I need help. I need, there's something really not right here. You need to help me. And the journey with the doctor, what you were diagnosed shortly after, or was that a big process or did it kind of, was no. it really apparent? What did the doctor say? Yeah, look, um, I think medical professionals, you know, they see things, but unless it's actually brought to their attention, they don't come out and, you know, specifically um, say, you know, there's something really massive going on here. But as far as I was concerned, when I sat down with the doctor, he just looked, took one look at me and said, I know exactly what's wrong with you. Um, and I'm really glad you've come to see me. Uh, he basically put me off work straight away and said, you are, you're cooked, absolutely cooked. So you need to have a rest. Um, you need to um, see some um, medical professionals as far as psychologists and someone is concerned. I'm going to put you on some medication um, to slow your heart down. Uh, that was one of the things that I talked to him about. I said, I don't know what's going on, doc, but my heart is just running constantly. So he gave me some medications for that. Um, I told him about my sleep, the fact that I was having nightmares, uh, the fact that I felt like people were um, breaking, were going to break into my house. Um, um, you know, the fact that I was um, fighting people in my in my dreams and uh, physically hitting my wife um, accidentally um, while she was in bed next to me. Um, so, you know, uh, he said that's classic PTSD, and um, he wasn't able to formally diagnose me at that stage. But that's the way that it was pointing, um, and that's the ultimate uh, diagnosis that came from my um, psychiatrist um, probably oh, six months down the track after that, I'd say. So what happened at work? So work, I, I, being a typical cop, I didn't want to go off work. The first thing you want to do is try and get back to work. So that's what I did. I went back on what's called restricted duties. Um, which are um, duties that don't involve um, frontline policing. Uh, so that's administrative tasks, etc., etc. Um, I had a very good commander at that stage who um, really supported me in, in, in that um, and was aware of my uh, experience with training other police and things like that and allowed me to, to actually um, do that as my, as my primary role. And so... Whilst I was on restricted duties, I'd be travelling around New South Wales, teaching other police um, the skills that I'd learnt over the years uh, about how to identify travelling criminals. And that was great um, because I felt safe. Um, I knew that I wasn't going to be having to make life or death decisions um, on a day-to-day -day basis. Does it mean you effectively take your gun off when you're on restricted duties? Yes, you do. So your, your gun gets double padlocked. And the reason for that is in case, for whatever reason, you try to access 
your own firearm, uh, there's another padlock on there that stops you from doing that. So you are on restricted duties. Um, did you feel pressure to, to come back into the office, both on yourself or from others? Not at the beginning, uh, but so about six months down the track, yeah, I did feel a lot of pressure. There was a change of leadership at the police station and I was basically um, asked what was wrong with me and um, questioned about my symptoms. Uh, I felt like I was being interrogated. In the meantime, I was still seeing my medical professionals uh, every week uh, and there wasn't, or there didn't seem to be any communication between, um, between management and my medical professionals. So I felt great amount of pressure um, to return to work. Uh, and when I say return to work, I, say, I mean my, my pre-injury duties, back on the front line as a, as a sergeant. Um, um, after about six months, uh, it sort of felt like I was being asked when I was going to be right. Mm. And I couldn't give them an answer. How did that feel for you? The first sort of instincts are that you need to justify yourself. Uh, I felt like I was being called a liar and I needed to justify myself. But then I was also thinking, I don't need to justify myself. This isn't something that you would be asking someone who had an obvious injury. And I felt uh, really angry about that. So the, the analogy that I would, I would give is that if I had broken my leg and I was wearing a cast, I don't think that I would have been harassed um, to give answers as to my own recovery uh, because I'm not a surgeon. I don't know what's gonna happen to my leg. But I felt that because it was an invisible injury, I was being made to feel like I should have definitive answers as to when I would get better. And that not only that, there didn't seem to be a interaction between um, management and my medical professionals, unlike a physical injury. You would never ask an employee about their return to work if it was a broken leg. You'd be asking a surgeon how long it would take for that broken leg to heal. So I was angry that because I had an invisible injury, I was being treated differently. So you, what did you do? You, you've ended up, you've left the police force. Well, look, I, I destroyed my own career is what I did. So I felt like I was backed into a corner. Um, and uh, my natural instincts, um, well, as I've, we've spoken about, is that you know, my brain was acting on a fight or flight uh, instinct. And in this particular instance, I came out fighting. Uh, I felt like I was, I was being bullied. Um, and so I metaphorically uh, threw um, a lot of punches. Um, I told a lot of people uh, my true feelings and that didn't end well for my career. And uh, you can't do that. Um, but I wasn't well. I didn't really know what I was doing. I felt, and I've, I've said this before, I felt like it was an out-of-body experience that I, could, I was watching myself slowly destroy my own career, but I had no control over it. And um, eventually uh, it was all brought to a head during a meeting with my superintendent um, where it got pretty heated and um, I left the office and um, I went down to the, to the doctor and my doctor um, wrote um, a certificate indicating that I was not allowed or should not be going back into the workplace um, at all. So that was my last day of physical service. And then I retired uh, officially medically unfit in July 2021. How do you reflect on all your years of service and how it ended? <laughs> I, I've loved, I love the job. Um, it was a job that I was uh, really passionate about and I think that I was, I was pretty good at. Um, and uh, would I still want to be a police officer today? Um, probably yes. It's, it's, um, it was my time. Uh, everyone has their time. But I think the way that it was dealt with, um, uh, it wasn't done. Uh, it didn't do my career any favours and I think my career was shortened because of that. Um, but I'll never have a bad word to say about 
the job itself. Um, it is a hard job, yeah, it is, but it is also a very, very fulfilling and worthwhile job. And I felt that it was my identity. I felt that's who I was. And um, I miss aspects of the job. I miss um, the camaraderie. I miss um, uh, a lot of people that I've come across over the years. Um, I don't miss uh, my, um, you know, my adrenaline being turned on 24 hours a day. Um, I don't miss, um, you know, having to answer my phone uh, when I'm on holidays in America um, and deal with major issues when I should be spending time with my family and thinking about my family. But um, I'll never regret being a police officer. Um, and is there an element there that you think you could have stayed in the position if stayed at the police force if it was understood that you had PTSD and there was a way to make it work? Yeah. I uh, still had a lot to offer the police. And I think um, that if things have been done differently, um, I could still be of benefit uh, to the police and, and, and to... And look after yourself. And look after way. myself, yeah, 100%. Protect, as I've said to you before, uh, I felt in, in those last few months that I was safe because I wasn't out on the front line and I didn't have to make life or death decisions. But I was still able to contribute and that was taken away from me. You, it's been a couple of years since you've left the police force and you've met a person in Broken Hill called Brendan Cullen. Yeah. Um, who I understand is a Lifeline ambassador. How did you meet him and how's your friendship formed? Yeah, so I met Brendan uh, a few years ago uh, as part of the Stingray Swimming Club family. Uh, he's an ambassador uh, for Lifeline, as you say. He's had his own um, mental health journey um, and he's a very well-respected um, member of uh, the Broken Hill community uh, and um, has been able to impart that uh, in because he's got amazing communication skills uh, through um, you know talking to people, um, advocating through the media, um, and things like that. Um, that it's okay uh, as a as a as a male um, or anyone to put your hand up and say, look, I've I've got a, I've got an issue, but. I think what really strikes a chord with people is that Brennan is a reflection of a lot of um, hard Aussie blokes. You know, he, he lives in the bush, uh, he works with his hands every day, uh, he's physically uh, and mentally shattered by the end of the day, um, and it's 50 degree heat and he goes and does it again. Um, but not only does he do that, he then goes and swims the English Channel like a, like a lunatic. But that makes him uh, an extremely well-respected person within our community. And I was able to, um, to get to know him uh, as part of the swimming club. And so when I had my, my own mental health journey, he was the first person I went to and um, asked if I could have a, have a chat with him. Um, and of course, he opened, um, opened up his, um, his, his home to me um, like he would with anyone. And, um, um, he's on the phone 24 hours a day. His phone number's on the internet. If anyone in the whole world wants to find his phone number, it's available. And he does that for everyone, not only me, but I was lucky enough and fortunate enough that um, he took me under his wing. And um, I had a, um, a really, really good um, chat with him about what was happening with me. Uh, and he um, basically invited me to, to spend time with uh, him and his family out on his farm away from you know the the pressures of, of life um, the pressures of um, everyday living um, seeing the police um, you know because it's a small town and you know you still see everything that you were involved with um, on a day-to-day -day basis so being able to go out to his property was just a, a really good physical um, you know sort of um, yeah break from, distance. from yeah distance from all that and so yeah, it's, um, I, I went out to his property um, and was able to talk to him about my own issues whilst he was doing his farming uh, and we just became really, really good mates. He was able to offer me a lot of really great advice 
and um, you know, show me the ropes while I was out there. You know, so I now know how to um, lift up a sheep and um, and um, uh, open open a gate and um, drive a tractor. I mean, it's you know, it's 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 pretty good stuff. It's 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 stuff you don't have to think about. And when your brain is going at a thousand miles an hour, the best thing is being able to do a task that doesn't require any thinking. And that's what I love about going out to the farm. Brendan managed to convince you to swap, to swim the English Channel with him. Yeah, which um, I was amazed at myself. What's um, it like in the water? In the English Channel? Well, just generally, had you been a swimmer? No, no. I hadn't. So the only reason that I'm part of the swimming club is because of my kids. Um, and my kids uh, swim because it's an activity that's healthy and gets them outside. And they just happen to be pretty good at it. But I myself haven't ever really been a swimmer. I can swim, but I wouldn't call myself a swimmer. Um, but, you know, working with Brendan and um, being part of his life sometimes involved uh, being had at his property um, at daybreak. And when you go with Brendan at daybreak, you end up uh, at Menindee Lakes in the middle of winter, standing on the shore. And when he's jumping in and um, harassing you to get in as well, you do it. Um, and I have to say that uh, it's not something I would have ever imagined that I would have done. Um, it is swimming in the Menini Lakes in, in, um, in winter it was probably one of the most exhilarating things I've ever done in my life. Um, and um, probably one of the most painful as well. So when you first jump into the water, uh, the shock of that cold water is uh, something you can't escape from. It overtakes your whole body. Um, and the physical pain on your skin uh, feels like it's never gonna go away. But suddenly, over a you know, short period of time, maybe it's a minute or two, um, your body tends to adapt to that cold and then your breathing slows down um, and you start to feel like you can handle the, the, the cold and you start to feel really comfortable, um, well I did anyway, in that environment. And for me, it was the first time in a long time where I felt like I had clarity in my mind, um, that I was literally just bobbing up and down, treading water in the Menindee Lakes, but suddenly I could see, or I could imagine parts of my brain that I hadn't seen for a long time because I just felt like it was clear again. And um, I believe that the, the experience of jumping in into the water, um, you know, in the middle of winter uh, with the cold and so on is, is, is something that's very therapeutic and, and has a lot of, a lot of um, benefits. So that's how I got into it and um, I got addicted to it. <laughs> so now um, it's something that's become part of my life, thanks to Brendan. Um, so then I, I watched him complete his, um, his English Channel journey and I was really inspired by that. Um, what he did um, is absolutely amazing. Uh, to be able to swim for 17 hours non-stop uh, with not knowing where the, the finish line is and to have the mental strength uh, to be able to do that is, is so inspiring. I didn't ever think that that was something that I could do myself personally, but when I was offered the opportunity to be involved in a, in a relay, um, I thought, you know what, that's, that's something that, that I reckon I might be able to do. And if I can do it with a bloke like Brendan and experience you know, half as much as what he experienced when he did his, but then also do something that you know scares me because ultimately swimming in the ocean across the other side of the world uh, in such an iconic uh, location, um, you know, in the cold at night, is 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 pretty daunting. Um, but I felt that it was the right time for me in my life to to approach a challenge like that. So what was it like? How did the swim go? You did a relay team swim. Yeah. So we had six people on our team. Uh, and the idea is that you, you swim the 34 kilometres as a team, uh, one hour each. And um, you, you're, when you're in the water, you have to do that hour. Uh, if you don't do that hour for whatever reason, whether it's injury or whether it's um, uh, fatigue or whatever, 
um, your team members can't take over your leg. Uh, and the, leg, the legs have to be done consecutively in the same order as what they have been. So you can't then even swap swimmer two and swimmer three because swimmer three is suddenly tired. It has to be done. So if you don't do your share, you let the team down. Um, and uh, I found that, um, you know, a, a, a huge challenge you know, in a way because I didn't know if I could physically swim for an hour. I mean, yeah, I've, I've swum and I, I trained uh, for 12 months and I thought that I probably could, but swimming in a pool is completely different to swimming in the ocean. And swimming in the ocean um, in between France and England is, is also completely different to swimming in other oceans because of the tides, the currents, uh, the change in the weather, uh, which can happen rapidly, um, and I guess the iconic um, nature of the swim itself. Um, so you don't really know how you're going to react at all until you jump in the water. Um, but look, I have to say it was probably one of the most uh, amazing experiences I've ever had. Um, you know, to be in another country, um, standing on the beaches uh, in England, looking over towards France and the history that goes with that, you know, with the um, Second World War and things like that, uh, or even, you know, the history of the swim itself, uh, the mere fact that only um, a few thousand people have ever done it, um, it can get fairly overwhelming. And um, I remember the night before we went for, we actually went for the swim, I went down to the beach and looked over and I could see the glow of France. And it was like one of those, this is a point of no return type of situation. And I got quite emotional and I thought, I really, really wanna make, you know, make sure that I do this um, for myself, but for my family and for my friends as well. Uh, because swimming in the English Channel, you don't do it, our, our coach says this all the time, you never ever do the channel by yourself. You always do it as a team, you never do it alone. So whether you're doing it as a solo, or whether you're doing it as a relay, there's always other people behind the scenes, you know, whether it's your family, whether it's your coach or your support staff. So yes, you might be in the water physically by yourself at that time, but it's a very good thing to keep in mind that there's a lot of people there helping you along, along the journey. That seems to be the case in life as well for us all too, yeah, I think. I wanted to leave it there, but is there anything else that you wanted to add before we conclude? Oh, look, I think uh, as far as um, the swimming is concerned, um, I can genuinely say that I believe that uh, swimming uh, has saved my life. It's, it's something that is so powerful uh, in the mental health and the physical health spectrum, but especially the mental health spectrum for me. I don't know if it's the same for everyone else, but for me, it gives me that opportunity to be in my own space without um, other distractions. And it gives me an opportunity to be able to think um, clearly. And it's one of those activities that um, I can do um, without having to make any major decisions, whether they're um, life-threatening or not. All I have to do is move my arms and my legs and it'll get me from one end of the pool to the other. And I find great um, comfort in that and it's something that's um, been given to me as a gift uh, and it's something that I'll take with me for the rest of my life and if anyone um, you know ever ever considers jumping in the water uh, just for their own personal reasons I couldn't talk about it highly enough swimming is one of the major reasons why uh, I am where I am today I did think of another question that was how's your health today and what's life look like for you today? Yep. <clears throat> so um, PTSD is a permanent injury. It's something that will stay with you uh, forever. It's something that you can certainly um, adjust to and hopefully um, improve in, in certain areas. Uh, but it's something that is not a quick fix. It's not something that can be fixed in six months. Um, it's not something that some people ever get over. As far as my personal uh, journey is concerned, I still struggle uh, every day. I still have panic attacks every day. Um, but what I have got now is I've got 
a, a great group of uh, friends and people that uh, are you know willing to to support me in my journey and understand how that affects um, my everyday life and how that looks in the way that I behave or the way that you know I might um, come across sometimes um, but I am very very thankful for where I'm at in my life at the moment I'm in what they call um, uh, I'm in a I'm stable um, so that is sometimes the ultimate goal is just to be stable and I'm very thankful that that's where I'm at at the moment but these but things can change at any minute and um, as you know from a conversation that we had the other day little things can just um, tip you over the edge and um, um, I had a bit of a rough a couple of days last week um, um, and it's it's taken me a while to get over um, but generally in my life um, I'm stable and I'm extremely uh, thankful and I feel very fortunate because of that. Ben, um, thank you so much for sharing your story and the courage it's taken to open up about your life and your journey. Um, I really appreciate it and it's just been an absolute pleasure to talk to you today, so thank you so much. Thanks very much, Ben. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. That was Ben Clavell, a former police officer living with post-traumatic stress disorder. If you or someone you know is a first responder and needs help, please contact Wartum Australia, a not-for-profit organisation which provides specialised mental health and wellbeing support to first responders and their families. For more information, head to wartumaustralia.org.au.